may be seated. And please turn with me in your Bibles to Ezekiel 45. Title of the message this evening, Life and Life More Abundantly. Jesus Christ said that's why He came. I am come that ye might have life and that ye might have it more abundantly. Today, we finish the book of Ezekiel. Beginning next Sunday, we'll begin a prophecy mini-series. It's my expectation that with our newfound knowledge of the book of Ezekiel, you will better understand why we believe what we believe concerning end times prophecy, concerning particularly the millennial kingdom. But today, like last week, we have much to talk about. The way I broke up the passages was perhaps a little bit different than one might expect, or the way that the text breaks it up. In the text, it's really broken up, chapters 40 through 48, into three sections. Chapters 40 through 43 are a description of the temple, very architectural, if you recall from last week. Chapters 44 through 46 speak of worship in that temple. And chapters 47 and 48 speak of the land that will be given to Israel, divided according to their inheritance uh, in God's faithfulness to the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we'll talk about these things and then we apply. And it's my prayer that as we apply this evening, it will both be a help to you and a reminder to you. Once again, there will be some charts, some diagrams that will be uh, on the screen. For those of us that are watching live, that's no problem. For those of you that are not uh, live, that are listening to this online, uh, as with last week, I might encourage you um, to go to our website and just below the title of the sermon, um, click on the link there and it will take you to YouTube. And I'll have the slides for today's sermon up on YouTube so that you can follow along not just with the audio, but also with um, the slides that I put up for our people. And by the way, for those of you listening, if that's something that you really enjoy, and uh, if, if you do that and it was a blessing to you, go ahead and leave a comment there on YouTube. And if I get enough of those, then perhaps we'll start doing that regularly. We'll start um, regularly putting each of the sermons up, not only in podcast format, but also on um, YouTube for those of you that would like to watch the slides as well. We spoke in chapters 40 to 44 last time, teaching through the temple and just touching in chapter 44 on worship in the millennium. This week we round out the book, finishing our look at worship and then learning about the land's divisions. Now recall last time we were together, we learned of the temple, its dimensions, its design. Then we learned of the ministry of a man named Zadok or his family and his ministry in the house of God as a divine reward for consistent faithfulness to God throughout the ages. That was our application that God uses those who separate themselves unto God, sanctify themselves unto God. And if you will keep yourself pure, if you will keep yourself separated, then God will be better able to use you for His purposes. Those priests, the priests of Zadok, would bear the responsibility of teaching the people the difference between the holy and the profane. They would have the direct privilege of ministering to the Lord in the temple itself. As we pick up in chapter 45 this evening, we continue to learn of this millennial sacrificial system. Do remember last time we mentioned as well 
that the millennial sacrificial system was very similar to that of the sacrificial system in the Mosaic Law. However, it's still quite distinct. We can use the old system, the Mosaic system, to help us understand the millennial system, but we would do well to keep them separated. And this is an advantage of the system of interpretation that we use that has been labeled in mainstream theology as dispensationalism. Because we recognize in the Bible these different dispensations or different ages, that being our word to describe God's unchanging plan, taking different forms and being carried out in different ways in each age, we're able to recognize and appreciate the distinct differences between the sacrifices under the Mosaic Law and those which are in the Millennium. The sacrifices of the Mosaic Law, of course, having been done away and fulfilled in Christ, the sacrifices of the Millennium are a holy remembrance and a careful reference back to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. We'll talk about that a little bit more as we look at some of those sacrifices just briefly this evening. Now, chapter 45 begins with a description of the land that is reserved specifically for the temple, the prince, and the priests. And remember last time we spoke about the entirety of the temple complex being 875 feet square, a total of 765,625 square feet of space. We broke it into understandable measurements by saying that it would fit nearly 13 football fields in its space. But I'd like to help you this evening get the idea of the scale of this temple in comparison to what we might see today or what we have read about in the past um, just a little bit better. In the image um, on the screen, you see a temple size comparison. Everything might be a little bit fuzzy there. That's all right because all I really want you to see is some of those size comparisons. On your left you have the temple as it's described in Ezekiel's day. That's the entire complex. To the top right, you have Herod's temple complex. And then below that, Solomon's temple. To the right of Solomon's temple, the court of the tabernacle, which would have been the one um, before the temple was built. That would have been the tabernacle. And then uh, in the green there at the bottom, that is the size of an American football field. And so as you look at these diagrams and you get a feel for this scale, you'll see that this temple, the millennial temple, Ezekiel's temple, not only dwarfs all of the other complexes with the millennial temple proper being almost as large just the temple itself as the entire temple complex of Solomon's temple, but there's something else as well that we should remark. The next slide is a photograph of the Temple Mount, a satellite photograph, or not a satellite photograph, an aerial photograph, excuse me, of the Temple Mount today. Notice upon the mount we see the Dome of the Rock and Al-Aqsa Mosque. These are the current Muslim um, holy sites showing the dominance of, of the Muslims on this Temple Mount right now. Of course, the Dome of the Rock being the dome, and then to its right in this picture being the mosque. But notice the blue line that traces around this entire complex. That blue line is tracing the outer wall. 
That would be the outer wall of the former complex built by Herod. So if you consider Herod's complex and how big it was on our previous slide compared to the new temple, it was about one-third the size, just a little bit better than one-third the size of the new temple. And then we look at the space that Herod's temple took up as you trace the outer wall of what would have been Herod's temple that is now destroyed, of course, and now we have the Dome of the Rock and the Mosque on it. What we recognize is the thing, this new temple, Ezekiel's temple, is not only going to be massive, but it's going to span more space than the mountain has to offer. There's no way Ezekiel's temple could fit on top of the current Temple Mount. It's just too big. That means the very topography of Jerusalem is going to have to change in order to adapt to the size of this temple. The temple is going to be so large that, that the very design of Jerusalem is going to have to change in order to accommodate it. And why, what, what we understand by this is that this is not a temple that's already been built. We must understand that the temple Ezekiel is describing has not been seen in history. You can go and you can read commentaries and you can read people that try to justify why the temple that Ezekiel described is already done and gone. It must be Zerubbabel's temple. It must be Herod's temple. Uh, there's, there's no way it can be some ambiguous millennial temple and they'll try to give you some references. But the sheer scale of this temple demands that it could not ever have been built. It's just too big. It's too big without a dramatic change in the topography and the location of Jerusalem. And so I wanted to give you a little bit better idea of what we were dealing with. We'll come back to some more charts toward the end that will help you again as we understand the breakup of the inheritance. But let's go ahead and pick up in Ezekiel 45. We'll read verses 1 through 5 as we jump into the text and start to walk through it. Scriptures tell us, Moreover, when ye shall divide by lot the land for inheritance, ye shall offer an oblation unto the Lord and holy portion of the land. The length shall be the length of five and twenty thousand reeds, and the breadth shall be ten thousand. This shall be holy in all the borders thereof round about. Of this there shall be for the sanctuary five hundred in length and five hundred in breadth, square round about, and fifty cubits round about for the suburbs thereof. And of this measure shall thou measure the length of five and twenty thousand, and the breadth of ten thousand, and in it shall be the sanctuary and the most holy place. The holy portion of the land shall be for the priests, the ministers of the sanctuary, which shall come near to minister unto the Lord, and it shall be a place for their houses, and an holy place for the sanctuary. And the five and twenty thousand of length, and the ten thousand of breadth, shall also the Levites, the ministers of the house, have for themselves for the possession for twenty, for a possession for twenty chambers. We see in these verses that the land was to be divided for Israel's inheritance. And I'm sorry, I probably should have put more charts up than I did in this lesson. I apologize. It would have helped you to see some of this. You will see it at the end, so hang tight as I try to describe some of these things that we're reading. The size of this initial inheritance was to begin with a baseline of the land that was set aside for the temple complex. 
By extension, this would be the land upon which the priests and the Levites dwelt also. Now the sum total of this land size was to be 25,000 reeds, or, of course, a reed, as we saw last week in Ezekiel 40, is six cubits long. Approximately one reed would be about 10.5 feet-ish. And so 25,000 reeds, 25,000 times six would be the number of cubits, long by 20,000 reeds wide. Now, if we were to estimate this, it would be about 8.3 miles long by 6.6 miles wide is the amount of space allotted for the temple complex, at the inheritance for the land surrounding the temple, and for the temple and for the priests and the Levites. 8.3 miles wide by 6.6, long by 6.6 miles wide. Now that is a pretty big plot of land. And it's to be divided into two portions, it's described here. One portion, it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be cut in half. So one portion would be 8.3 miles long by 3.3 miles wide. And the other portion again would be 8.3 miles long by 3.3 miles wide. So you'll cut it directly in half, 6.6 miles in half, 3.3, long. One of these portions would be set aside for the priests and for the sanctuary itself. The other would be given to the Levites, those who would serve in the temple. So one chunk of this 8.3 by 3.3, or uh, by 6.6, the 8.3 by 3.3 chunk, would be for the temple and for the Levites. Then an 8.3 by 3.3 chunk for the, the Levites, excuse me, the temple and the priests, and then the Levites would have the other section. And note the distinct difference between the setup and that of the law. In the law, the Levites were supposed to be dispersed throughout the land, living in the suburbs of cities owned by other tribes. Now they're all together and they're ministering as a part of the temple's inheritance. They're not ministering in the other people's inheritance. They're ministering in the temple's inheritance. In verse 6, we see a lot reserved for the city of Jerusalem itself also. And this lot is the same, 8.3 miles long. And this time it's by 5,000 reeds wide, which is approximately 1.7 miles wide. So, let me describe this for you. In verses 1 through 5, we have a plot of land described as 25,000 reeds wide by 20,000 reeds long. Then in verse 6, we have a plot of land, and that would be for the priests, the temple, and the Levites. And then we have a second plot of land that is 25,000 feet um, reeds wide by 5,000 feet long, uh, reeds long. And that would be for the city of Jerusalem. Some total, if you add those up, it's all 25,000 feet long, and it's actually 25,000 feet wide, right? It's a square. It's one big square. 25,000 reed, I keep saying feet, don't I? 25,000 reed long by 25,000 reed wide square. That makes up the temple and the priest's living quarters the Levites' living quarters, and Jerusalem, the city itself. One big square, 8.3 miles wide by 8.3 miles long. And this is right in the heart of Israel. That would be the holy portion dedicated to serve the Lord. 
Now, beginning in verse 7 and going uh, through the rest of the chapter, we see um, various other elements of both allotment and worship. In verses 7 and 8, we see the portion that's given to the prince. The prince has a specific portion of his own. The scriptures tell us he will receive the portion of land on both sides of the holy portion. The west side all the way to the Mediterranean Sea and the east side all the way to the Jordan River. So you have this big holy square, the holy portion, 8.3 by 8.3 miles square in the middle of Israel. Everything to the west of it for that 8.3 miles long, uh, long and everything to the east of it, west to the Mediterranean and east to the Jordan River is the portion that's given to the prince. In verses 9-12, through 12, Ezekiel steps back into the present for a moment using the reality of these future blessings to compel obedience. Notice what he says in verse 9. Thus saith the Lord God, Let it suffice you, O prince of Israel, remove violence and spoil and execute judgment and justice. Take away your exactions from my people, saith the Lord God. You shall have just balances and a just ephah and a just bath. God says to those who will read this, being leaders in Israel in the years to come, let it suffice you that the prince will get his portion and he will get it. Not because he took it by force or violence, but because God gave it to him. The prince is given a portion. And let it suffice you that the prince will get a portion because God gave it, not because he took it away violently from the people. And the reason why this was so important is because that's what the princes of Israel would do. That's what they have been doing. And as if you recall from our Nehemiah series, that's what they would continue to do even after they came back from captivity. They would continue to take advantage of the people. They would continue to extort the people. What we see in verses 10 through 12 is that the biggest problem among Israel's leaders would be greed. God stresses that in the days of the millennium, there would be a true and a balanced currency. A just ephah, he says, and a just bath, both units of currency. In every age, we have always seen the rich extorting the poor. It was no different in Israel. The rich extorted the poor because the rich take over industry and the poor are at their mercy. And this would not be the case in the millennium. So it would seem, as we understand how Ezekiel is using these words, we can assume that they are directed toward the returning remnant. That as Ezekiel is writing, they can't, he can't be writing to the contemporary day because they're already in captivity. But he's exhorting them to be just, to remove violence and spoil, probably writing to that returning remnant, to those from the days of Nehemiah all the way to the days of Christ, exhorting them to be righteous in their dealings with the poor, and to have a just weight and balance as they prepare themselves for the regathering and the redemption under Messiah. As we continue in verses 40, uh, chapter 45, verses 13 through 17, the remainder of this chapter, in fact, describes the offerings performed during the millennial worship. Verses 13 through 17 describe the specific amounts that would be given to, by the people to the prince. These would be, if, if you will, taxes. Everyone is to offer a percentage of what they have, thus ensuring that everyone is treated with equality. 
They were to give one sixtieth of their wheat and barley to the Lord, to the prince, excuse me. They were to give one one hundredth of their oil to the prince. They were to give one sheep out of every two hundred they had. These would be given to the prince who would in turn use them for the maintenance and functioning of the temple sacrifices. There are five specific sacrifices or observances mentioned in verse 17. It says, And it shall be the prince's part to give burnt offerings and meat offerings and drink offerings in the feasts and in the new moons and in the Sabbaths. In all solemnities of the house of Israel he shall prepare the sin offering and the meat offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings to make reconciliation for the house of Israel. So we see three offerings, burnt offerings, meat offerings, drink offerings, and then we see also peace offerings mentioned, new moon feasts, and Sabbaths. All of these being mentioned as performing, being performed at the initiation of the prince. In verses 18 through 25, we close this chapter with a look at three very specific feasts that would be required in the millennium. You recall under the law, there were three times in every any year that Israel, the men of Israel, were required to come up to the temple for the feasts. Unleavened bread, Pentecost, and tabernacles. Also observed in the law was the day of trumpets and the day of atonement. There are only two feasts described in the millennium and then two observance days. Verses 18 and 19 state that the first day of the first month would be a day to cleanse the sanctuary through a sacrifice. Verse 20 states that the seventh day of the first month would be a day to cleanse the people of sins, both known and unknown, to reconcile the house of Israel unto God. Verses 21 through 24 describe a feast beginning on the fifteenth day of the first month and continuing for seven days. If that sounds familiar, that's the first feast that overlaps with the law. That would be Passover and unleavened bread. It's even called in verse 21, the Passover and unleavened bread, indicating that the feast will serve the same function. But whereas the current Passover looks back at Egypt as a sign of the Messiah who bore their sin, the future Passover will look back at the complete fulfillment of their redemption through Jesus Christ's work on the cross of Calvary. Verse 25 describes the final feast to be had on the 15th day of the seventh month and continuing for seven days. This feast is the exact same time and length as the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles, where Israel remembered the days of wandering in the wilderness. In the same manner as Passover, this feast will remember not just the wandering in the wilderness, but also the scattering of the remnant and the regathering during the time of the tribulation. Zechariah 14, 17, and 18 tells us anyone of all the families of the earth who does not come to worship the king at these feasts, particularly the Feast of Tabernacles, in the millennium will be plagued with drought upon their land. And so we see the observance of the tabernacles and the Passover. And then we see two other days of observance, days which were not mentioned in the law. That's the first day of the first month which is a cleansing of the sanctuary, and then the seventh day of the first month, which was a day of preparation. Cleansing the people of their sins. It should not go without notice that the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Trumpets, and the Feast of Pentecost are gone from the millennium, as described in Ezekiel's day. Pentecost pointed to the church. The church is now with Christ. 
Trumpets was a call for national preparation and might be viewed today as a picture of Christ's return, which had been fulfilled. Atonement was a day of national mourning, and there would be no mourning for Israel in the millennium, which is why those three observances and feasts had passed away. As we step into chapter 46, the daily ministration of the temple as pertaining to worship is now described. We had mentioned last time that the eastern gate through which the Lord entered his temple would be shut, except for the prince who would both enter through the gate and eat his offerings in the gate. We learn more in these verses. Each Sabbath and each new moon, the gate would be opened for the prince to enter and to offer his offerings. The prince would enter and exit through the eastern gate. Everyone else, according to verse 9, will enter either through the north or the south gate, and they will leave from the opposite gate. So if you entered in the south gate, you left through the north gate. If you entered through the north gate, you left through the south gate. In verses 11 through 15, we see a description of the events surrounding an unscheduled voluntary offering given by the prince. In like manner to the Sabbaths and new moons, the eastern gate would be opened for him to enter and to offer this voluntary sin offering, or this voluntary, excuse me, this voluntary offering unto the Lord, not a sin offering. There would also be daily sacrifices made, not for offerings from the people, but as a part of the regular worship unto the Lord. Verses 16 through 18 describe God's expectations concerning the prince's gifts to his children and his servants as it relates to the 50th year known as the year of Jubilee. Under the Mosaic Law, on the 50th year, every man's inheritance was to be returned to him and every man's debts were to be expunged. This was a way in which God had intended Israel to keep their inheritance because every man's inheritance would be returned to him at the end of the 50 years. It was almost like a national reset button that you'd hit the reset button and everything would be returned to you that you'd sold. Uh, all of those deals, all of those debts would be forgiven. It would seem the millennium had something similar for Israel. Any land that the prince gave to his sons would remain his sons because it's remaining in his family. However, any land that the prince had given to anyone else for whatever reason, maybe when somebody does good or um, has performed his duties admirably, the Lord, or the, excuse me, the prince might give him some, a piece of land for his efforts. Well, at the 50th year, that land will go back to the prince according to the law. At this point, I'm compelled to bring up again the identity of this prince. We've mentioned it several times, Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel 37. You're probably like, hey, pastor, you've convinced me. You don't have to keep mentioning it. But let's just think about what is being described here. This prince is called David in Ezekiel 34 and 37. The prince worships in the temple by bringing offerings unto the Lord. The prince lives off of the temple premises. This prince has children. It seems very likely, seems very obvious that this prince is not Jesus. A prince that is worshiping the Lord instead of being the Lord. A prince that lives off the temple complex instead of ruling and reigning from the temple. A prince that has children. This is not the description of Jesus in the millennium. Chapter 46 finishes in verses 19-24 through 24 with Ezekiel being led back into the temple where the priests boil the trespass and sin offerings. It introduces us to these chambers, of which there are four, one on each 
corner of the outer court. Look with me, if you would, in verse 19. After he brought me through the entry of chapter 46, which was at the side of the gate into the holy chambers of the priest, which looked toward the north, and behold, there was a place on the two sides westward. Then said he unto me, This is the place where the priest shall boil the trespass and the sin offerings, where they shall bake the meat offerings, and they shall bear them not out to the utter court to sanctify the people. Then he brought me forth into the utter court, and caused me to pass by the four corners of the court, and behold, in every corner of the court there was a court. In the four corners of the court there was courts joined of forty cubits long and thirty broad. These four corners were of one measure, and there was a row of buildings round about in them, round about them four and it was made with boiling places under the rows round about. Then he said unto me, These are places of them that boil, where the ministers of the house shall boil the sacrifice of the people. So here we see kitchens in various places in the temple complex in the corners in order that the trespass offerings and the sin offerings might be boiled before they are offered unto the Lord. Moving right along in chapter 47 and 48 we see the remainder of the land being given to the people. The first feature mentioned is a life-giving river that will flow from God's presence in the temple through the land of Israel. Ezekiel is led back into the inner court where he sees this river coming out from under the threshold of the temple and heading east into the Kidron Valley. Zechariah 14a tells us that this river flows from Jerusalem and will divide the land in half, and half of that river flowing toward the Mediterranean, the other half flowing east toward the Dead Sea. So it's going to go out from both the west and the east. However, as Ezekiel sees it, he's describing the portion that goes east toward the Jordan and the Dead Sea. Ezekiel begins to travel along this river eastward with this angel. He goes 1,750 feet along this river and he says at that point, the water is ankle deep. He continues eastward through this river another 1,750 feet and as he gets to that point, he says the water is now knee deep. Another 1,750 feet and the water is waist deep. Another 1,750 feet and the water is higher than a man can walk or through. It's probably above his head. More important, however, than the look of the river and the depth of the river is the effect of this river. Verses 7 through 12 tell us that alongside this river, on both sides, there was tremendous vegetation. It flowed toward the east and it eventually entered the Dead Sea. And then, through the Dead Sea, went into the Gulf of Aqaba. Everything that this water touches will be made strong and alive. And this is very significant. Because I mentioned the sea that this river was going to flow through. The Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea because nothing lives in it. The salt content of the Dead Sea is six times greater than that of the ocean. It cannot sustain life. cannot sustain plant life. It cannot sustain animal life. But on the day when the healing river flows from the presence of God, the Dead Sea will be healed and will be made to sustain life 
for the first time in recorded history. God's careful to mention, however, in verse 11, that there will still be salt in the land. The marshes and land surrounding the Dead Sea will still be very salty. Salt will be valuable to Israel. But I'd like you to take a moment and think about that. The Dead Sea being brought to life is very symbolic. Symbolic of what the Lord is going to do to the nation of Israel. Similar to the vision that we saw several weeks ago in the Valley of Dry Bones. Can these bones live, God said. Ezekiel says, Lord, Thou knowest. Well, they will live. Israel will be restored. Another symbol of this is the Dead Sea itself. As the Dead Sea is made to be alive, so too Israel will be made to be alive. And they will be happening at the same time. Now, in chapter 47, beginning in verse 13, and through the end of the book, 48-35, we see a description of the inheritance given to each tribe in fulfillment to God's people, Israel. God has promised each of His people that they would receive an inheritance in the land. And God is going to be faithful to that promise. So as you look at this map, we can talk through it together. In verses 15 through 17, God describes the northern boundary of the land. We would believe it's north um, to be, or the boundary to be north of Damascus, stretching from the Mediterranean Sea above Sidon to Sadad. So up here, just cut off a little bit there, would be the northern boundary of Israel's inheritance. In verse 18, God describes the eastern border, primarily delineated by the Jordan River. There's a chunk of extra land to the north there. And then as it comes down, the Jordan River becomes, by and large, the delineator of the eastern inheritance. In verse 19, the southern border of Israel is established as far as the waters of Meribah Kadesh at Kadesh Barnea. This is significantly farther south than the Dead Sea. In verse 20, the Mediterranean, called there the Great Sea, is said to be that western border. The final three verses of chapter 47 introduce the allotments for each tribe, taking care to mention that strangers in the land who come to Israel to seek um, uh, an opportunity to live among the people will be given an inheritance among the people as well. So as we look at this map, You see here, and again I apologize for not bringing this up earlier, a square in the middle of Israel that's broken up into three main portions. This is that 8.3 mile square that delineates the temple, the priest's inheritance, the Levite's Levite's land, and then the land for the city of Jerusalem. The Levite's portion is to the north, 3.3 miles by 8.3 miles. The priest portion is with the sanctuary, 8.3 miles by 3.3 miles. And then the city's portion, land on either side of the city, 8.3 miles by 1.75 miles for a total of 8.3 miles square. The prince's portion is from the west of the city all the way to the Mediterranean and the east of the city all the way to the Jordan River. That cuts a strip right through the middle of the land That is for the temple, the city, and the prince. Then beginning in the north, we have a listing of each one of these inheritances from north 
to south. Pre- uh, presumably, like the princes, the, each of these inheritances would span the entire width of the land and then would have a smaller length. We see first Dan, then Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Ephraim, Reuben, Judah, Benjamin, and Judah, that would be all through Judah, that would be north of the city. And then south of the city, Benjamin, Simeon, Issachar, Zebulun, and then finally there at the south, Gad. Each one receiving an inheritance. Of course, we know Levi has no inheritance because it is given to him within the 8.3 square mile portion, the inheritances of the Lord. We also see that there are 12 tribes listed because in consistency with the promises in Genesis, Joseph gets a double portion. He receives the double portion birthright. So Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's two children, each receive a portion of the inheritance. In verses 8 through 29, God again details these lands given to the prince, the priests, and the Levites. It's again mentioned that Zadok is the priestly line that will have the privilege of ministering to the Lord due to their obedience. God specifies the size of Jerusalem as a part of the southernmost plot, that is 8.3 square miles. The city itself will be 2.2 miles square, with pasture land on either side comprising the remainder of the land. The final section of the book, found in chapter 48, verses 30 through 35, describe the gates of the millennial temples in Jerusalem. Excuse me, the millennial city, city of Jerusalem. Ezekiel has just been brought full circle in the book. He declared destruction upon the city, offering up signs against its walls and its gates and its people. And now Ezekiel gets to see the city rebuilt, strong, healthy, peaceful, and blessed. There will be three gates on each side of the city, and each one will be named for a tribe in Israel. On the north side, closest to the temple, will be the names Reuben, Judah, and Levi. On the east side will be the names Joseph, Benjamin, and Dan. On the south side will be Simeon, Issachar, and Zebulun. On the west side, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. And before we step into our application, please allow me to highlight for you the final four words in this prophecy. If you turn to Ezekiel 48, verse 35, notice the last four words. The Lord is there. You know, Ezekiel's been through a lot in these past 25 years of his life. He's seen the abomination and devastation of Jerusalem. He's been scorned. His wife has died. But without a doubt, the thing that would have been most difficult for him would have been the day that the glory of the Lord departed from the temple in Israel. Throughout the description of the land and the temple and the city, Ezekiel has been witness to many wonders. But it is apparent that the thing which stood out the most, the thing which was most essential, the thing that compelled all of this prophecy in Ezekiel 40-48, to the thing that stands out the most in Ezekiel's mind as he finishes this prophecy is the fact that the presence of the Lord is back among His people. God will return to dwell with His people and He will dwell with them eternally. 
I intended to ask you one question. I'm actually going to ask you two. The first question I want to ask you this evening as we close an application is this. Will you be there? Ezekiel will come up again next week as we begin speaking of end times prophecy. But the question that we must ask is this. During the millennial reign of Christ, only certain of earth's population will be present. Old Testament saints will be present. Those, including national Israel, who were saved during the tribulation will be present. And then a third group will be present, and that will be the church of Jesus Christ. Who will not be present? Everyone else. All of those in every age who did not accept the revealed word of God to be saved from their sins will not be there. The scriptures tell us, in fact, that they will not even be resurrected yet. They will be waiting for judgment. They will be awaiting that through the thousand years, after which time they will be resurrected, judged before God, and cast into the lake of fire. So where will you be? The Bible says all of those that will not be with Christ in the millennium will be in a place called hell. A place of fiery torment. A place where you will await final judgment. This will be a place of torment because of the fires, but it will also be a place of torment because in contrast to those who are in the millennium, the Lord will not be there in hell. There will be no presence of the Lord. There will be separation from God forever. And that is why Ezekiel's last four words are, for, are so essential. The Lord is there. Because if you are not in the millennium, then you are not with the Lord. However, the decision as to whether or not you're going to be in the millennium is a decision not made in the next life. It's made in this life. The Scriptures tell us it is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. The decision you make in this life will dictate where you go for eternity. So the Lord will be there in the millennium. The question is, will you? See, the Scriptures tell us we're all sinners. And because we're sinners... We have been separated from God. That we deserve this place that we've described already called hell. But, the Scriptures tell us God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That there is a way for you to be saved from your sins, to have your sins paid for in order that you might not go to hell. In fact, the payment's been made already. Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, died upon a cross and bore your sin. As He shed His blood, that blood was counted as righteousness for all who would accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. And so the Scriptures tell us if you will place your faith and trust in Christ alone to save you from your sins, you will be saved. And Jesus Christ's payment will be applied to your heart and your life so that you will one day be with Christ in the millennium. But I'd like to talk to the believers in the room who are the majority this evening. Revelation chapter 20 verse 6 says this, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with Him 
a thousand years. The Scriptures bear out that you will be a part of that first resurrection if you are a believer in this room. Which means you will rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Then I reference you to Luke chapter 19. Where the Scriptures tell us this beginning in verse 12. Jesus Christ is giving a parable and He says, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass that when he had returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, thou good faith, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, have thou authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said, Likewise to him, Be thou also over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in the napkin. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up that thou layest not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. And he said unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that I had not that I had laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest not thou my money into the bank, that thou at my coming, or that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury. Jesus Christ gives a parable here where he speaks of a man that goes to receive himself a kingdom. When he comes back, he takes an account of those servants that he left behind awaiting the kingdom. As we consider the reality, the Scriptures tell us that we will rule and reign with Christ in the millennium. And we consider a parable where a man goes to receive his kingdom and comes back. What we see gives us an understanding that when Jesus Christ returns... He's going to ask for an account of you. What did you do with what He had given you in this life? Did you take advantage of what God had given you and multiply it for His kingdom? And it would appear that the degree to which you are faithful to bear fruit for God in this life will make a mark on how much responsibility and blessing God gives to you in the millennial kingdom. To that servant who had taken his one talent and multiplied it to ten, his Lord came and said, in my kingdom you'll get ten cities to rule over. To the one who had multiplied it by five, in the kingdom this master said, you get five cities to rule over. And may I encourage you as we go from here this evening, that your work does matter. That the degree to which you work for Christ and seek to bear fruit for His kingdom on this earth matters to you in the millennium because you will rule and reign with Christ one day. But the degree to which you rule and reign, it would appear, is contingent upon the degree to which you are faithful to Him in this life. Let's close in prayer.